I want to start off in a very popular verse in the Old Testament by the prophet Isaiah. And uh, I'm going to do something a little bit different this morning. If you've been following us for the past few weeks, we've been using the book of Psalms to kind of guide us through um, depression. Because if you look all throughout the Psalms, there's actually 67 different lament Psalms where people faced hopelessness or despair or depression. And that's one of the reasons we've been using the Psalms. But today, I kind of want to take a break from the Psalms, and we're going to talk about our mind. We're going to talk about something I think that a lot of people don't talk about in church. We're going to talk about mental illness, and we're also going to talk about how do we strengthen our mind. Does the Scripture say anything about guarding our mind? Does the Scripture say anything about mental illness when we just feel like, man, I can't get out of bed in the morning, and I don't know why I can't do that? But before I dive into that, I want to offer you some hope. This is the prophet Isaiah 53, verse 3, talking, and he says this, and he's talking about Jesus. He says, he was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows, I love this word, and he was acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hid their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. So it says, Jesus, I want you to understand this, the founder, the perfecter, the author of our faith, the God that we serve understands our grief. What he's saying in this text, when you feel so low, when you feel so hopeless, and you feel like nobody understands what you're going through, and if you feel like, if I open my mouth and I share this with anybody, they're going to think I'm absolutely crazy. But the truth is, what the prophet Isaiah is saying right here, he says, Jesus understands your lowest moments. They even called him a man of sorrows who was acquainted. That word acquainted in the Hebrew simply means he was familiar with. He was very familiar with grief. He was very familiar with pain. He was very familiar with hopelessness. But so here's what I want you to know this morning. That Jesus knows your despair. He was a man of sorrow, but he wants you to know that when he went to the cross and he went to the grave, that he defeated sorrow. That he defeated hopelessness. That he defeated despair. And so here's what I want you to understand this morning. This is so important. If you find yourself in the middle of a hopeless situation, if you find yourself in the middle of depression, listen to me. There is a way out. There is a way out. Because when you find yourself buried under this blackness of depression, you buy into the fact that I'm totally alone, nobody understands where I'm at, and there's no hope, and there's no way out. But I want you to understand one thing. Your God understands exactly where you're at, and he offers hope to you today. So, so let, me, let me say this. If you're fighting with depression, the whole reason that we're talking about this series is not just to talk through depression, but ultimately, at the end of the day, my hope is that God would restore your joy. My hope is that God would restore hope in your life that hopefully, maybe maybe slowly for some of you, that you begin to come out of that black cloud, that grayness that is depression. So let's pray one more time, and I want to pray, and I want every single person in here, if you are struggling with depression, I want you to fight as hard as you can to believe these words. Because here's the truth. If you're, if you're struggling with hopelessness, if you're struggling with despair, here's, here's the tendency in your brain right now. Another pastor talking about another topic. I'm going to walk out of here, and I'm just going to be exactly the same, and God's not going to do anything for me. But listen, I want to challenge you, and I want to encourage you this morning to stretch your faith. And I want to challenge you and encourage you as I pray that you would genuinely believe these words, and they would seep down into your heart, and God would begin to do something. Amen? Father God, we thank you for who you are. 
God, I pray for every single person across this room. God, that is at a hopeless place. God, that is at a place where they feel like they have absolutely nothing left, where they feel like depression has got the best of them. God, I pray that today that they would fight with everything that they have to believe that today, God, that you love them, that you care for them, and you want to set them free from the chains that are hopelessness and that is depression. In Jesus' name, amen. So I don't know if you know this or not, but your mind is the greatest battleground that you will ever fight on. How many of you sometimes, just show of hands, you feel like your mind, your brain, your thoughts is just like a swirling, tumbling tornado of emotions? Anybody know what I'm talking about? You're, you're, some of you, are, you, you, you have a hard time concentrating because you just feel like there is just an explosion of thoughts in your head. Over the past three years, we started this church almost three years ago, and over the past three years, I've literally come face-to-face with people who are totally um, mentally ill, or they feel like, I just feel like something is off in my brain, or I feel like some chemistry is, needs to be rewired, or whatever it may be. But here's the truth, and we know this by now, especially if you're struggling with depression. If the enemy can grab a hold of your mind, he can grab a hold of you. If he can grab a hold of your mind, if he can grab a hold of your thoughts, if he can just get you to swirl around a ton of thoughts that God doesn't love me, God doesn't care about me, I'm totally alone, I feel hopeless in this moment, then we know this, the enemy completely grabs a hold of us. So what I want to do today is I want to talk about some different biblical principles that the Bible actually offers us of how we can actually strengthen our mind. How we can get to a place where we can, instead of our mind just being this swirling tornado of emotions going on over and over, that the Bible actually does offer us some hope so that we can strengthen our mind and we can get to a healthier place. Now let me just throw out a little caveat, a little disclaimer this morning. I am by no means claiming that through this whole series that, you know, we're going to talk through some issues, we're going to talk through some things, and you're going to pick out one line that I say, or one scripture verse is going to pop out to you, and you're going to totally be set free and healed. Now, I'm not, God can totally do that if he wants to, but for the majority of people, all I'm asking you to do this morning, this is all I'm asking you to do, I'm just asking you to join us on the journey. That's it. I'm I'm asking you to join us on a journey that says, listen, I know I'm in a hopeless place. I know I'm fighting with depression and I just want to get better. I just want to get better. And as you get on that journey and you, t- God begins to take you through this journey of healing you one step, one moment, one day, one season at a time, that ultimately you'll get to a place where God is going to restore your joy. But I think the question that must be answered this morning is simply this. When our minds go to battle, when they go into this black hole of endless thoughts, of hopeless thoughts, how do we fight back? How do we fight back when we feel like our mind is completely under attack and we're believing absolutely everything that is thrown back at us? Let's read a, a, a famous passage in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 3 through 5, and it'll be on the screens, and if you're following along in the app there, it's with us on the app. It says this, For though we walk in the flesh... We are not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God, and watch this, and take every thought captive to obey Christ. So I want to point out two things. Every fight 
every battle that you go through in life is going to start in your mind. And then the second thing that this scripture talks about is if we want to win that battle, then ultimately we have to take that thought and we have to submit it to the truth and the authority of what God says about us. But here's the truth. It's a lot easier said than done, isn't it? <laughs> so, so here's what you get oftentimes if you're struggling in depression. Well, hey, man of God, woman, you just need to, you need to take that thought captive. Just deal with it. That's a lie. That's, that's not truth. You know, just deal with it. Take it captive. Surrender it to God. But the truth is we know that it's a much longer process than that. It even says at the end of the verse, it says, take every thought captive and make it obey Christ. How do we do that, though, when we go back to the illustration that I used earlier, when our thoughts are everywhere? When we, how do we do that? How do we make our mind obey Christ when we feel like God has abandoned us? Or God has left us. How do we do that when we feel like if I'm open and if I'm honest about these thoughts, if I confess them to somebody, um, they're not going to understand me. They're going to think I'm a crazy person. How do we do that? Scripture obviously teaches us to guard our minds by taking every thought captive. But how do we make it submit? Because I don't know if you've noticed, noticed this, but I've noticed this about myself. My mind always doesn't do what I want it to do. It doesn't always think the thoughts that I want it to think. I, if I'm quite honest with myself, my mind is often disobedient to the scripture. Um, it's oftentimes it has a tendency to be very rebellious. Oftentimes I feel as if my mind has a mind of its own. Anybody know what I'm talking about? When I want to think a certain way, my mind tends to go a different way. When I want to ponder on God's goodness, my mind wants to wander. When I have a moment when I say, God, I'm going to pursue you, I'm going to pray, and I sit down, and I have the cup of coffee, and I'm like, okay, this is the moment. I'm going to seek God right here in this moment. Then my two-year-old wakes up with a poo explosion everywhere, and now I have to clean up poo all over the house, and it's over, right? Or maybe you just sit down to pray and you're like, all right, God, I'm going to give this time to you. This is dedicated to you. You sit down, you got your cup of coffee, you got your Bible, or maybe you're on your porch. You're like, this is perfect. Finally, some time to myself, I'm going to pursue God. You go down, you look down to read the words on the page, and then all of a sudden, boom, hey, don't you have a deadline on a bill that you need to pay? Boom, hey, um, what about the floors on your house? Aren't they rotting? Don't you need to take care? And then all of a sudden, it's this explosion of thought, and now you can't concentrate. Does anybody know what I'm talking about? It seems like our minds constantly misfire from the truth. Some of us, man, we've, grow, we've grown up in the church a long time, and maybe, you, maybe you've been reading the Bible since as long as you could remember. So, so honestly, some of us know the truth, but we just find it so hard to believe many times because our minds are telling us a complete different story, right? But I find comfort. Even, even the authors of the scripture, they write things like this. This is Paul in Romans 7. He says, I don't do the good I want to. He says, instead, I do evil I hate. What a wretched man I am. What Paul is saying, I have good intentions. I want to make my thoughts and my mind submit to the authority of Christ, but I can't. What do I do? So it almost seems like these scriptures kind of come into contradiction, don't they? They don't, but it almost seems like that. So how do we make our minds submit to the authority of Christ when our minds have a mind of their own? So let's talk about the good news. The good news is the Bible has a whole lot to say about strengthening our minds. 
It talks about renewing our minds. It talks about submitting our minds. It talks about bringing our thoughts into captivity. There's at least, that I can find, there's at least a hundred principles in God's word that have to do with our minds. Strengthening our minds. The truth is your mind is the greatest asset, and if the enemy can win your mind, he can win you. He can win you over. But the hard part about all of this is depression is an epic battle in your mind, isn't it? It's a war that seems hopeless to fight, and that's why many of us just give up. Because we feel like, I'm, I'm never going to defeat these thoughts. I'm never going to overcome this gray that I find myself in. So all I want to do today is I want you to say, God, I'm willing to start on a journey to get to a place where I can say, okay, I'm ready to jump on the train to begin the process of getting healthy, to begin the process of strengthening our mind. Our mind is a muscle. We got to work it out every single day. So that's all God wants to do to us this morning. Listen, you're not going to arrive at a place where all of a sudden I say one thing and then all of the, pres- the depression that you've fought for the past 30 years of your life is just going to go away. It's still a process. The theological term for it is sanctification. All it simply means is this, is that for the rest of your life, you're on a journey to look more and more like Jesus. And the thing that I love about Jesus, he has so much grace on us. Say, hey, I'm I'm not expecting you to figure it all out today. All I want you to do is jump on board the train and start the journey of getting better. So I want to give you three principles that will help you strengthen your mind this morning. Number one, stop believing everything you're thinking. Stop believing everything you're thinking. We naturally feel that if we think something, it must be true, right? Just because you think something does not make it true. I remember I was 10 years old, and I was probably about 8 or 10 years old, and my brothers and I, for the first time, my mom was a huge Mary Poppins fan. Okay, and she, I hate musicals. I love music, but I hate musicals, okay? And my mom, one night, she was like, listen, I'm telling you, family movie night. We're all excited. She pops the popcorn, and I'm like, what are we watching? Tell me we're watching Star Wars, Batman, something. She's like, Mary Poppins. It's like, oh. (laughs) But I remember watching this movie, and I was actually quite fascinated by it for some reason. And anybody, if you've seen it, anybody remember the part where she opens the umbrella, and she like floats down? Anybody remember that? Well, see, in in an eight-year-old's mind, you're like, oh my god, I can do that? This is amazing. So my brothers and I, after we watched the movie the next day, we're like, dude, Mary Poppins is legit. Grab the umbrella. Let's get on top of the roof. We're jumping off. So my brother and I, about eight years old, we got an umbrella. We are on the top of this roof. And I am totally convinced in my mind, as soon as I jump off, I'm going to be floating around like Mary Poppins. Well, I jump off. Gravity takes over. My big old head goes forward. Boom. Boom smash my head on the ground. And here's the truth. I want to tell that funny story. I genuinely believe by something that I thought and saw that it must be true. But here's how this plays out in life. Sometimes the enemy plants a thought in our brain. And sometimes, honestly, the enemy just has to back away. He doesn't have to do anything. He just leaves you over to yourself and your own thoughts. And a thought may pop into your mind and say, it's hopeless, there's no way out. And you go, that must be the truth. That must be the truth because my whole life has been like this. My whole life has been filled with grief and pain and despair. So this must be the truth. On top of that, Satan makes suggestions to us all the time. 
But the truth is your problem is much deeper than the enemy. Because, and I'm, I'm just going to offend many of you in here, but it'll make sense in a moment, okay? Every single person in this room, including myself, has a mental illness. Everyone. It's called sin. Every, it's just like what Paul said. I want to do the things. I want to do good things. I have good intentions, but for some reason my mind takes me elsewhere. If you're a man, you walk in, you say, man, God, I keep my thoughts pure. And then you walk into a room and what happens? You have every intention of keeping your thoughts pure. But in this day and age that we live in, boom, something flashes and all of a sudden those good intentions go out the window, right? So we want to do good things. We have good intentions. The Bible uses at least a different, a different dozen phrases for the conditions of our mind underneath sin. In one, it says our minds are confused. Deuteronomy 28, 20 says, The Lord will send on you curses of confusion. That's a great scripture. <laughs> it also says our minds are anxious and they're closed off. Job 17 says, Who will make you secure? You have closed their hearts to understand. Our minds are evil, they're restless. Ecclesiastes puts it this way, For all his days are full of sorrow and irritation. It also says that our minds are rash and deluded. The Bible also talks about a troubled mind, a depraved mind, a sinful mind, a dull mind, a blinded mind, a corrupt mind. At the end of the day, our minds are broken by sin. We said this in the very first week of the series, that when man fell in the garden in Genesis chapter 3 and sin came into the world, it was not just his physical body that fell, but all of man fell. Our physiology our chemistry, our mind, every single part of us was broken by sin. So here's what this means. We can't even trust what we think about ourselves. We can't even trust what we think about ourselves. Jeremiah, Jeremiah 17, 9 puts it this way. The heart is deceitfully wicked above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? I love the question that he adds at the end. Like, who on this earth can understand our own hearts and our own minds? He's asking, nobody. If you continue reading the chapter, it says the only one that can understand is God. I don't know about you, but we have this amazing ability to lie to ourselves. You do it all the time. I do it. We all do it. And so, so let me play out what this means. We tell, our things that things aren't, we tell ourselves that things aren't as bad as they really are. How many of you ever just like, you're like, I just need some positivity in my life. Things are going horrible. It's not that bad. <laughs> but the truth is, it's like really bad, right? Or we tell ourselves that things are going to get better when they're really not. Or we tell ourselves that we're doing okay and we're really not. As many of you did it this morning. Good morning. Welcome to church. How are you? I am awesome. <laughs> no, you're not. <laughs> or we tell ourselves, hey, it's no big deal when it's really a big deal deal. Jeremiah is saying you can't even be trusted to tell yourself the truth. That's why every single thought that you have, you need to bring into question and submission to the Lord Jesus Christ. What does God say about me? What does the scripture say about me? Because that's the only truth that I can trust. That's the only absolute truth that I can look at. The truth is, this is why we have so many Christians that have fallen Meaning that they, they tried Christianity and they say, man, this isn't for me. <laughs> because what they have is they begin to believe their own lies. 
And so maybe you dove into a relationship with Jesus when you say, man, I'm, I'm all about this Christian life. I'm all about God working in my life. And then all of a sudden, one negative thing happens. One trial happens and you say, oh, God must not love me. And rather than combating that lie, you begin to believe that lie and you begin to slide in to that depression. The Bible says that Satan is the father of lies in John 8. Man, if Satan can get you to believe a lie, he can own your mind, and at the end of the day, he can cause you to sin, which is going to just bring you more and more and more and more into a hopeless place. See, every time me and you sin, it's us thinking that we know better than God. Every single time we sin, it's saying, God, I know the truth, but I need to do this. I know better than you. So at the end of the day, we have to bring every thought into submission before God. What does God's word say about me? In 1 John 1, 8, it says this, If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. So we deceive ourselves, and we say, no, nothing is wrong with me. I am fine. I'm okay. So here's the biggest reason you need to stop believing everything that you're thinking. The reason we need to stop believing everything that we're thinking is because oftentimes we choose what we want to see. Um, I've been doing some research on the brain lately, um, kind of for, in preparation for this message. And I don't know if you know this, if there's any medical professionals in here, you might know this. And if I get it wrong, um, you can correct me after service. Um, but the optic nerve is the only nerve that goes directly to your brain. It's the only nerve that goes directly to your brain. And now watch this. It's going to sound confusing at first, but I'll explain it. The optic nerve actually sends impulses from your brain forward, then from your eye backwards. So here's what this means. Meaning your brain is telling you what you see. You're already preconditioned to see what you want to see. Your eyes don't physically see. Your brain, your ner- that, is con- that nerve that is connected to your brain is telling you what your eyes are seeing. So let me play it out this way. You put four people at the scene of an accident, a car wreck, let's say, and all four of them are going to see different things. They're all going to come to their own conclusions. No, this car ran into this one. No, I I promise you it was this car that ran into this one. Or let let me put it a different way. Maybe you've been emotionally hurt or abused in a relationship. Okay? So you take that predisposition that has happened to you and you bring it in to the next relationship with you. Now, when you do that, and let's say a spouse says something to you, they don't say it angrily, but maybe they say it loud. Well, you choose to see what you want to see in that moment. You see, oh, they're angry at me. They must hate me. They must not love me. But you're already preconditioned to think that because you're already seeing what you want to see because in the previous relationship, when somebody would yell at you, it meant they didn't love you. So now in this very relationship, oh, they must be angry at me and they must not love me. Do you see what I'm going? We're already preconditioned to see what we want to see. It's the very reason that we can't believe everything that we think. Because you put four people in one room and they'll all see different things. And oftentimes it usually depends on their life experiences and what kind of things they've been through in life. And by those life experiences, they'll choose to see what they want to see in that moment. Another example is when you look at a a glass and you say, is it half empty or is, is it half full? Well, it depends on how bad your life has been. <laughs> it doesn't it, though. You have the optimist who says, well, man, we got water to drink. You have the pessimist that says, well, I'm going to be thirsty in about 30 minutes. <laughs> right? We're preconditioned to see what we want to see. 
So that's the first thing if you're fighting with depression. Stop believing everything you're thinking. This will help you strengthen your mind. Number two, fight to distinguish between fact and feeling. Fight to distinguish between fact and feeling. And let me throw out a little disclaimer for this point. You cannot do this one alone. You can't. This is impossible without community. This is impossible without church family. You cannot do this one alone. Because 90% of the time in the midst of depression, your feelings have zero connection to reality. In the middle of hopelessness, you're not thinking logically. You're not thinking straight. So let me give you another example. If you ever find yourself stuck in quicksand, just if it happens, I'm going to save your life, okay? If you ever find yourself stuck in quicksand, the more you panic, the more you struggle, the more you move, the deeper you sink. The deeper you sink. Now, how do you break free from quicksand? How do you get out of that struggle? Because everything logically in your brain when you are sinking is to go, oh my God, I'm going to die. Get me out of this hole, right? Your brain is telling you, if you don't get out of this hole, you're going to suffocate. You're going to die. It is the end. It is over. Start singing Kumbaya. Your life is done, right? That's what your brain is telling you in that moment. But the way that you break free from quicksand is to stand completely still. To stand completely still, to not move, to just stand there. And scientists actually have proven it. If you stand completely still without moving in the middle of quicksand, the deepest you can sink is to your knees. The deepest you can sink is to your knees. Now, it's a lot like depression. Depression causes our brain to struggle with reality many times. We feel like everything is crashing down around us. But the fact of the matter is, it's usually not that bad. So feelings, when you're in that quicksand, oh my God, this is over, my life is over, this is it, this is the end. Like I said in the beginning, 90% of the time when you're struggling with depression, you're not connected to reality. Because all you can think about is how awful it is in your head. Let me give you another example. Um, A few days ago, about last week, we um, were at the pool at the gym with Peter. And uh, Peter, um, he's, if you've met him, he's one of the most energetic kids. He's usually the first person up in the morning when you hear footprints or feet stomping around. It's usually Peter. And, uh, but one thing, he's, it's just taken him some time to get used to the pool. So he wears one of those floaties. And a few, a few weeks ago, he got really brave, and he's in the shallow. And he's like, man, I don't need this floaty. I got this. And at, 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 the, uh, at the gym, it's kind of like this beach entry pool. So it, gets, it goes from about literally zero feet to about, you know, three feet, four feet, all the way down. Well, he's walking without a floaty. It's getting a little bit deeper, getting a little bit deeper. And he kind of turns around. Okay, that's too deep for me. And I don't know what happens, but he trips or something, and he falls. Well, he has this moment of panic. Oh, my God, I am drowning, <laughs> Right? I am drowning. I'm standing right next to him, but he's freaking out. I can't swim. He's choking up water, and it's, it, the ordeal lasted like a half a second. But when you're two years old and water covers your face, it feels like forever, right? So he's freaking out, and I'm looking at him. I'm like, son, just stand up. <laughs> it's, it's two feet. 
not even two feet, maybe a foot and a half. And I'm like, son, just stand up. The truth was he's panicking in two feet of water, feeling like it's the end of his life and it's over. But unless he had me over him saying, son, stand up, it's going to be okay, he would have drowned in two foot of water. And that's what depression is like for many of us. Drowning in two feet of water without community and church family to tell you, stand up. It's okay. Listen, that's why I said you can't do this point alone. You can't. You cannot combat the lies in your own head by yourself. And some of you already, you've already convinced yourself, I just need it between me and God. That's all it needs to be. You will never get as far as you need to get without community. It's the whole, this is the importance of the theological conviction of the Trinity. God himself, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, God himself does not even live in isolation. He lives in community. See, if you try to process your life or circumstances through the dark lens of depression, you'll be terrified, won't you? If you're looking through the lens of depression, if you're looking through the goggles of depression, everything in your life seems overwhelming. It it seems scary. If you're depressed, it can be extremely dangerous to evaluate anything in your life. I would encourage you, don't examine your circumstances. Don't examine your friendships or your prospects for marriage in the middle of depression. Because I can assure you, most of the time, you will misinterpret reality. In the middle of depression, when you begin to examine things, you have to realize you are cho- you're seeing life through a gray, dim lens. And you're not seeing reality as it ought to be. So what do we do? What do we do in the middle of depression? What do we, what do, we do when I say fight to distinguish between fact and feeling when we feel like the, the fact is so blurry and we don't know how to find it? Here's where we start, and this is just a starting place. Simply say this. I'm leaving that to God for now. I'll think about it later, and I'll trust him to handle it. Depression oftentimes happens in the overanalyzation of one thought. You take, how many have ever done this? You take one thought that maybe just was a blip in time, something somebody said to you, they probably didn't mean anything, but you took it and you stretched it out for about a year. (laughs) Anybody know what I'm talking about? You just stretch it out, and you begin to add lie on top of lie on top of lie on top of lie. And that anxiousness and that overwhelming feeling got you to a place of that darkness that you find yourself in now. I want you to understand this. God can handle your life even when you feel like you can't. Listen, God can handle your life even when you feel like you can't. Now remember this. Faith is not a feeling. It's not a feeling. Faith is believing that God will do what he said even when you don't feel like he will. God will never contradict himself. God will never go contrary to his word. If he said that he will never leave you and never forsake you, guess what? He means it. And he's not making an exception just because you made a mistake. And that's what we believe most of the time. Well, I made a mistake. I find myself in this deep place, this pit of depression, this hole of hopelessness, and God is making an exception. He has completely forgotten about me. But the truth is, the fact is, in his word, it says it will never leave you nor forsake you. It also said no height, no depth, not demons, not angels, nothing can come in between the love that God has for you. 
we got to learn to pray the same prayers that David prayed in Psalms 139. He says this, Our faith may often slip away from our sight. How many of you have ever felt like that before? Like, I just, I feel like I'm losing my faith. I feel like God has abandoned me and God has forgotten me. But listen to what he says. But it does not slip away from God who gave it to me in the first place. Our faith may often slip away from our sight, but it does not slip away from the God who gave it to us in the first place. The truth is, your life will always be out of focus if you view it through the lens of depression. And the only way to bring truth into focus is to place yourself in the flames of community. It's to place yourself around people that will love you enough to look at you in the eye, not in a condescending way, not in a proud way, not in an arrogant way, not in a way that they, hey, I have it more figured out than you do, or I'm better than you, but in a way that they love you so much that they say, man, I just hate to see you struggle. I know that God has so much more for you. I want to see God restore joy and hope in your life, and I am here to help you walk through that. That's what godly community is about. Those are the stories that I get to hear every single week of people that are involved in life groups. And we have, we have some incredible groups here at this church. Amazing groups. We have the most groups that we've ever had before. We've got more people ever involved in life groups before. And every single time that I talk to a person that is involved in a life group, their life has grown measurably. And all it is, is it just comes in that flames of community. You have a brother or a sister that can look at you in the eyes and say, man, I'm concerned for you. And because you love them so much, you take it seriously. Or when you go through tragedy or you go through hard times, those are the people that are there for you at the end of the day. Proverbs 17, 17 puts it like this. A friend must love at all times, and a brother or a sister is born for adversity. That's what community is for. Let's fight the darkness together. Let's fight the hopelessness, the depression, the despair together. The last point that I want to make, it's going to seem a little light, but it's so important. Number three, get out of the darkness of your home and go for a walk. (laughs) Get out of the darkness of your home and go for a walk. There is an intimate connection between the body and the soul. There's an intimate connection between the body and the soul. If you are not feeling well, guess what? Your soul doesn't want to feel well either. If physically you don't feel up to the task, well, guess what? Spiritually, you usually don't either. Your body often charts the way forward, and the soul usually will follow. When your body is deeply sick, it pulls your soul downward like a weight tied around your ankles. It just does. I've actually found that the most effective methods for increasing my faith begins with the body. So so let me give you an example for this. When I exercise or I go sit in the sunshine, my body just feels better. This week has been a very just crazy, busy, busy, busy week for me, a little stressful. And um, I'm telling you, I could take all of that stress and just dump it out at home and let it affect me and let it affect my body. Because how many of you know, like, stress and anxiety, it hurts. (laughs) You feel it, like, in your bones. You feel it in your stomach. You feel it in your shoulders. And, And the greatest thing, because your body is connected to the soul, I've noticed that every single time that I go to the gym and I get on a treadmill and I run and I lift some weights and I do something physically, I burn all that off. 
I burn it all off. And the truth is, for some of you, it could be as simple as maybe just getting out of your house, going for a simple walk, hitting up the gym, going and having coffee with a friend, sitting down and, hey, can we just eat together? Let's just go to a restaurant somewhere. I just need to be around people. I just need to get out of the darkness, the coldness of my home. And the longer that you stay, because most people that fight depression, they love to live life in isolation. And the longer that you live life in isolation, in the confines of your home, the worse it's going to get. And the more hopeless it's going to feel. See, when you exercise, when you work out, when you just go for a walk, when you sit in the sunshine, there is blood and oxygen that pump through your body, refreshing and nourishing your body. See, when our body feels good, we think better. Our minds are sharper. It's that inducing of adrenaline that we get for that moment. Charles Haddon Spurgeon, who was a famous Baptist preacher, probably one of the most famous pastors ever, said this, and he was a pastor who struggled greatly with depression. He was actually one of the first pastors that had a church over 10,000 people. And... um, In the 19th century, that was unheard of. Um, And because his church grew so rapidly and and so big and so large, um, at the age of, I think, 26, 27, he had about 10,000 members in his church, and he was greatly criticized. I mean, the newspapers were writing things on him all the time, always just making up stories about him of things that he said and things that he never did. And he found himself in the midst of all kinds of legal battles, fighting for the church. And, and, and here's a man who just simply wants to preach the gospel and see people come to know Jesus. Greatly filled with depression. He said the church got so large. Think about this. This is before the invention of microphones. So he got 10,000 people in one service, and he's hollering at the top of his lungs so that everyone can hear him. And this is his quote. He says this. This is a day's breathing of fresh air upon the hills, or a few hours maybe in the beech woods. Unbrageous calm would sweep the cobwebs out of the brain of scores of our toiling ministers who are now but half alive. A mouthful of sea air or a stiff walk in the wind's face would not give grace to the soul, but it would give oxygen to the body, which is the next best thing. So here's a man who struggled greatly with depression and saying, man, one of the ways that I, I fight this is I literally just enjoy God's creation. I get out of my house. I, I put the phone down. I go for a walk. I have a cup of coffee with friends. I just enjoy life. I enjoy dinner. You know, a dinner with a friend could be one of the most spiritual things that you do. (laughs) That you go there with the intentionality of just saying, you know what, I'm just going to open up to this friend because I know they love me. I know they care about me. I want to just talk about the deeper things of life. Man, if you're struggling with depression, I would just encourage you to have conversations that have deeper meaning than small talk. How how was the day? How was the weather? How's your son? Whatever it may be. So I want to close with this. God loves you even though you don't feel it today. He can handle your life even when you feel like you can't. If you're depressed, man, embrace God's creation. Enjoy the sunshine. Go on a walk. Go on a jog. Get out of your house. Sit on the porch. Feel the warmth of the sun on your face. Drink coffee. Watch the sunrise. Go do an activity. Do something. 
Now the truth is, you won't feel like it. You'll want to hole up in the darkness of your room and you're gonna wanna pull the covers over your face and stay in bed. The truth is maybe just 20 minutes of you getting out could change the course of your day, could change the course of your week. I wanna leave you guys with this thought and I've said it a few times in this. God can handle your life even when you feel like you can't. God knows exactly what you need exactly what you need, even when you feel like you have no answers. When you feel like all the solutions elude you, when you feel like, man, you've, you've taken all the medicine you can, you've gone to all the psychiatrists and all the counselors you can, you've done everything that you can. Here's the truth. God will never let you struggle to a place where he has never designed a way out. There's always, always a way out. We did a series last year called The Comeback, and one of the catchphrases of that series was simply this, it's never too late and you're never too far. Some of you, I know, I know what you're thinking right now. You're thinking, Pastor Zach, you don't know my life. <laughs> you, you don't know what I've walked through. You don't know what kind of tragedy I've encountered. You don't know what kind of things that I've had to experience. I don't. My hope is that I can have compassion on you, have empathy for you, and I pray that God can help me to see you the way that he does. But here's the truth. You do have a God that understands everything that you've gone through. It's the whole reason I started this message off with Isaiah 53. He was a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. He knows what it's like. He knows what you feel right now. That This very thing that you feel right now, whether it was a tragedy, whether it was a job loss, whether it was just a moment in a crisis of faith where your just faith went out the window. Maybe you had a ton of questions about God and who he was and is he faithful to me? God can handle your life even when you can't. He knows exactly what you need even when you can't find the answers, when you don't have all the solutions. Our God is a good father and he takes care of his children.